it now. So I'm going to okay. stop the sharing for a moment. There we go. All right. Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacey Roman, and I'll be moderating this discussion today. Very pleased to have Mr. Wolfgang, G or Dr. Wolfgang Gieschwanitz, a writing fellow at the Middle East Forum and a German-American historian, join us to discuss Grand Mufti Al-Hassani's influence-abiding impact. Dr. Schmanitz will speak for 10 to 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. We'll do our best to get to all questions, but we have many participants on this webinar today. So I apologize in advance if we do not get to yours. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Dr. Wolfgang G. Schmanitz. Thank you very much, Stacy, for having me on and giving me this opportunity to talk about the Grand Mufti Al-Husseini's abiding impact. Amin al-Husseini was from a prominent Jerusalem family. They settled there in the 17th century. He was very diligent, studied Arabic, French, English, and some German. He made himself a part of Mid-Eastern European history in World War I, II, and in the Cold War. It was a time of nationalism. Jew hatred spread in Europe and Zionists were looking for a nation in Palestine. He reacted by shifting to politics for national and global Islamism. A pardoned rebel, he became in 1921, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. Later then he was busy with Islamic affairs. Now I present to you four slides only with key points on his legacy and ties to the Holocaust. I won't talk about domestic affairs, although they are very important and interesting. As a historian, I gleaned sources from archival documents, texts, and memoirs. Here you can see a picture of his Damascus memoir that Abdel Karim al Omar edited in 1999, Muzakkirat al Hajj Muhammad Amin al Husseini. And you can see the designer of the book cover must have known or must have read his book and um, presented uh, his goal as whole, the whole of Palestine. And I can only advise this book is very, very interesting. And there are lots of facts and opinions in this book. Um, he witnessed multiple genocides in World War I and supported it against Jews in World War II. This Islamist persecuted an infidel minority to build his nation or empire. Prior to World War I, he studied at Al-Azhar University. His teacher was a reformer, Rashid Rida, and he made the Hajj. Al-Hajj Amin was an Ottoman officer and knew of Armenian deportations. And in between came the German Ottoman Jihad plot with the goal to instigate Islamic revolts in British, Russian, and French colonies. And this was most fatal to local minorities. There were 1915 massacres against Christians. No intervention happened, and later only a few killers were punished. He reported similar attempts in his book against Jews under Jemal in 1914 to 17. 
He became ill, went to Jerusalem, joined the Arab revolt of Sharif Hussein. He read in 1918 the Ottoman Belfort Declaration that says, said yes to a Jewish home and cooperation with Jews. But it remained on paper only. The idea was novel, stop killing Jews as before done or attempted, give them a legal home and treat them as equals. He was shocked. Thus he aimed to stop Jewish migration at its source in Europe. Here you can see a picture of him as an uh, Ottoman officer sitting in a chair. And I would say he was very much socialized and impressed with uh, the Ottomans and the Ottoman history. Upset by the transfer of German Jews to Palestine, he called in 1937 to rid Islamic lands of Jews. The same year, he sent a pact draft to Hitler, saying, we are natural allies. We, we don't want a Jewish home in Palestine, nor do we, do we wish Jewish travel to the Middle East. On November 28, 1941, he met with Hitler 90 minutes, and they made, they made a genocidal pact against Jews of Europe and the Middle East. There's a photo of that meeting in the city of Berlin. He knew basic Shoah stages, as Adolf Eichmann explained it to him, and visited himself camps. He met yearly with Heinrich Himmler's top SS men near Hitler's East Prussian bunker. He spent four years in Germany and Italy and unfolded Islamism by Jihad and his Arab Legion. He recruited uh, in Serbia, in 1943 and invested one million pounds sterling into seven big German companies and partially funded the Muslim Brotherhood. SS Chief Himmler told him in mid-1943 of having killed so far three million Jews. And Himmler said also, soon we have an atomic weapon. In 1944, US troops in Europe issued a warrant for him and his entourage. He escaped in 1945 and fought with ex-Nazis and mother and brothers, a state of Israel. Then he refused talks via the United Nations for refugees, reconciliation. Rather, he would use the Arab League. He regarded the internationalization of Jerusalem a conspiracy against Muslims. Jordan's Abdullah replaced him as Grand Mufti in 1948, and the king was killed suspiciously, suspiciously in 1951. In 1953, he organized a big meeting in Jerusalem, and the, among the outcome was all Muslims need to fight for Palestine, Israel is invalid, and peace with Israel is treason. In 1964, he wanted the Egyptian held Gaza back. Instead, Abdel Nasser set up the PLO to undermine his influence and position. He asked Yasser Arafat to take over the PLO in 1968, late 1968, and to try to liberate the Gaza Strip with his Fatah troops. 
He lost his trial to get one million pound sterling investment plus interest back from Germany in 1973. He called on Muslim leaders for an atomic bomb against Israel and cultivated ties with Iran. And here you can see a picture of Al-Husseini and Abdel Nasser. I think it was from 1953. It was right from the start an uneasy relationship because Abdel Nasser feared uh, his overboarding influence, especially on the Muslim brothers. And among the new leadership were also members and former members of the Muslim Brotherhood. So he tried to distance himself of Al-Husseini. So a couple of points about Al-Husseini's legacy. His fight for a homeland was quite natural. The problem was, the main problem was, he blocked all give and take and crossed red lines of humanity. He favored totalitarians, fascists, Nazis, Soviets. He himself was an autocrat and no liberalization was possible under his leadership. He adopted Nazi ideas like all or nothing. It's a race war until the eradication of one side and no separate peace deals are possible. Just look at this picture of the New York Times cartoon. Uh, I believe it came out um, in, at the time of the Israeli Independence Day. And now they said, we are able to defend ourselves, unlike as we were inmates in the system of prison camps. So it's not like Dachau, is it? Herr Mufti, Mr. Mufti, this cartoon says, and it shows us that uh, many of his experiences in the Third Reich were already known at this time. He relied heavily on petrol dollars, turned to the Kremlin, Hanoi and Beijing, and there was a motto, you need a permanent people's revolt. Since 1917, he blocked compromises with opponents, Jews and Zionists. He refused even useful proposals for the Palestinians as London's 1939 white paper. He tied himself to the Shoah, and I would say his key goals were drive Jews out, have a free Jew-free Middle East and an Islamic Europe. He funded mosques in Europe, especially in Munich and Aachen, and made Palestine as a pan-Islamic cause under the motto, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is in danger. He made Said Ramadan his Swiss successor for Europe and Yasser Arafat for the Middle East. So thank you very much for this opportunity and thank you to the Middle East Forum. All right, thank you so much. That was an excellent presentation. We have quite a few questions coming in now. The first one is a two-parter. Uh, why was Hassani not uh, arrested and sentenced as were some other Nazi supporters and how could the English mandate tolerate him as the leader of the Muslims? 
This is a very good question and uh, there were a lot of discussions. It, there was a struggle between the great powers and uh, there was always a problem, do we put before the Nuremberg trials also persons from Asia? And uh, he was formerly from Asia. And, uh, and then there was a next question, if we put persons from Asia, from which countries? And since he didn't belong to any formal state or something like this, um, they decided, uh, the great power, the justices, that they wouldn't go into Asian-related countries. And especially, uh, they decided that Japan would do its own trials, and this was an Asian country. And so there was basically no foundation uh, to put him on trial. He feared very much such a situation. He knew that he was wanted, and he had the feeling that there is a possibility he would be captured uh, in secret, especially after 1961, as, or after 1960, as um, Eichmann was put to trial. And many then said, if you put Eichmann on trial, you should also uh, put the Mufti on trial. He knew it, and he wrote about this in, in his memoirs, and he even mentioned that they would like uh, to have him put on trial uh, before Nuremberg, Nuremberg even. So he was aware of this danger and he gave even press conferences and mentioned it, but it never came to it. And uh, also some great powers was in, were in rivalry with each other, especially the French and the British. And all of them feared that if they do something with the Mufti, like a trial, then there might be uh, eruptions and unrest in the Middle East and after the long war, the long uh, World War II, everybody was exhausted and nobody liked to get into such a trouble and to such a um, situation in the Middle East. Thank you. When did the Mufti die and under what circumstances? In 1974 in Beirut, near Beirut, and uh, there is also his grave and um, one can visit it and i there were rumors but i have no possibility to uh, dive into those rumors and not to check them it was a so to speak to my mind what i read it was a natural death understood thank you was al Hassan or was it more complicated than that? Say it again, please. Uh, was he just an anti-Semite against the Jews and the Israel, or was it more compl complicated than that? It was, of course, more complicated. He wasn't born as an anti-Semite, but very early on, he got into contact with um, people who were clear anti-Semitic, anti um, especially in this uh, school where he studied French and he came into contact with Catholic uh, teachers and they told him about their theories. 
of um, who killed Jesus and all of this uh, religious related um, insights and um, and he himself had no good experiences with Jews and even in an early age he boasted that he fought against the Jews in Cairo if as he studied as he was a short while in Cairo and lived there and he founded secret clubs to get more people together and uh, we know of his club Fidaiya, the self-sacrifiers and, um, and others and he tried always to tie to bring people together like-minded people together and at one point we have a document uh, where he talked about his experiences with Jews and he said I, I have never met a good Jew. They are all bad. And this is, of course, you can say something like this about any group, especially large groups. They are not the same. Everybody is an individual. But so he was heavily um, turned already against them. Thank you. You mentioned that he advocated for an atomic bomb to be used on Israel. Was he not concerned that it would impact Muslims as well as Jews? That's a big question. This is also a question nowadays, but I know of uh, some uh, Muslim leaders who would argue, okay, if we use an atomic bomb on Jerusalem, perhaps uh, many of our Muslim brothers would die, but at least we, we get rid of the Jews. There are such calculations. I don't like them. I, I don't find them humanely. And I, 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 I'm really astonished. I wouldn't sacrifice my own people for something like this. But so um, nevertheless, uh, the technology of atomic weapons nowadays allows for fairly um, small the small bombs and so on, and there's a big fear all, always that dirty bombs or small nukes uh, would uh, come in by people who are willing to self-sacrifice. Thank you. So this question now has come in in many different forms, but to what extent is Al-Islani's ideas part of the DNA of the Arab Muslim world today, particularly among Islamists and jihadis? He is, um, I mean, he is, uh, many people know him very well. And um, he was for a long time very famous because he was uh, uh, in World War One. He served in World War One and World War Two, and he met Hitler, which was a big point and it made a lot of news at the time. And uh, so he was a case to be emulated for some Islamists and um, it is, but then after Israel became a re reality, he lost a lot of sympathies because many regarded him as the architect of the Nakba, the debacle, what they call a debacle that Israel was able, able to defend itself and to come into reality as a state. And they blamed often the Mufti that he didn't 
organize it well enough and but he did a lot against uh, the nascent, nascent state of Israel. He tried his best, but uh, for no avail. Could you please elaborate a little more about the 1939 London White Paper? The White Paper, I believe, came out in uh, May 1939. And it said basically, it aimed basically at an Arab majority state within the next 10 years. And it reduced after five years, the Jewish immigration completely. And it was a shocker for many peoples because right at the time where such a big change came in the center of Europe with Hitler's advance, in the time of the biggest need, all of a sudden, London changed and proposed uh, this type of state, a bi-ethnical state with uh, clearly uh, the goal of an Arab majority. So in the time of the biggest need, there was such an unreliable ally to be seen and many uh, many Jews tried to disregard this paper. Thank you. Uh, we did get this question in. I'm sure it's probably not so simple, but why wasn't he assassinated? Oh, there were many attempts against him. And already as he uh, was in Beirut and in uh, Iraq, let's, let's say this. In the mid of 1937, after the uh, Arab revolt and in the midst of the revolt, um, the British um, were after him and he fled. He was for a while in, the, um, in hiding and then he went to um, Syria and from Syria to Iraq. And in Iraq, he had a bigger influence with Rashid Ali al-Kailani and they organized the Al-Farhud pogrom and the Al-Farhud pogrom meant to be a signal in mid-1941 how to deal with Jews. And uh, there were quite, at this time, quite several operations from the Jewish uh, side to capture him. But for certain reasons, they had either no access or they didn't do it. Thank you. So our last question of today's webinar is, where can we find more information on your work? I, I know you, you told me a little bit about what you're working on now, but if you could tell our viewers, that'd be fantastic. You can go on my website, uh, uh, schwanitznet.de or schwanitznet.com or on the Middle East Forum's website. There are uh, several of my writings and it's widely spread, I guess, just if you Google my name, Wolfgang G. Schwanitz, you will find a lot uh, more information. And um, I, if everything goes well, a new book will be out soon enough. There we go, that's what I was looking for here. <laughs>
All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Schwanz, for speaking with us today. We are unfortunately have come to the close of our webinar. Please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings invitation coming out this weekend. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks a lot.